Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, we are in the book of Romans, and we are in chapter 4 now. Um, There it is. Some of you might recognize these two men, Wilbur and Orville Wright. Uh, I'm reading a biography of these men. They're the ones who um, invented the first heavier-than-air flying machine that was able to carry a pilot. Um, Here's a picture of their plane. Early 1900s, this happened. Um, Great invention, obviously. Changed the history of the world. Hard to overestimate what a significant development this has been for human civilization. Very interesting to note that uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright had no college education. They had no training in, in anything related to aviation, had no technical training. Um, they didn't have anybody helping them. They didn't have any financial backing from any wealthy person or from the government, and they had very little money of their own. And yet they did this amazing thing. So how did they do that, given their lack of resources and even training? How did they do it? And I think what I'm kind of learning about them is one of the things that helped them along was simply their faith in the possibility that human beings could actually fly. I mean, nobody had seen anybody fly before, but these two were absolutely convinced beyond a reasonable doubt and even beyond contrary evidence that they noticed in history and even in their lives as they were ridiculed and scoffed at and laughed at and ignored even when they were beginning to make progress in getting this plane in the air. The press didn't come out to see what was going on. The U.S. government paid no attention. They had to go to France to try to get some uh, uh, interest in what they had done. Uh, And yet they just kept pushing forward and ended up um, accomplishing this great invention for human civilization. Um, it, it wasn't always that way, though, for these two guys. You know, I mean, they, they did have this faith, and they believed that it could happen, but there were times when they were discouraged. There were times when they were down, and there was at one point that Wilbur Wright said, not in a thousand years would man ever fly. And as I'm reading their story, it's just reminding me that this is a little bit like the Christian life. That is, we are called to have faith in things that seem maybe a little unbelievable and maybe contrary to the evidence. But we have this faith and we keep moving forward in our Christian lives, even though sometimes we're wondering, why are we doing this? Sometimes we're, we're thinking, you know, I, I mean, I'm trying to live as a Christian, I'm trying to exercise my faith, but, you know, not in a thousand years is my marriage ever going to get fixed. Not in a thousand years is my best friend or my son or my daughter or my spouse going to become a Christian. Not in a thousand years am I going to ever be able to get past this besetting sin in my life. This is the Christian life, isn't it? It's... it's, it's I believe, help my unbelief. That's it. 
We believe, and yet we struggle to believe. We have faith, and yet our faith is challenged. It's opposed. We're disappointed. We're discouraged. We get ridiculed sometimes. We face various setbacks, and our faith withers in the face of these things. Well, we're going through, again, a study on the book of Romans, and now we have arrived in chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, and what this passage gives us is a picture of what Christian faith looks like. And so that's what we're talking about this morning. What does faith look like? Christian faith, biblical faith, what, what is the nature of this thing, particularly when we're facing overwhelming circumstances that challenge what we claim to believe? So chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, here's where Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, speaks to us about this, using Abraham once again, uh, last week we looked at Abraham's life in some detail, and Abraham is still the subject here of Paul's argument. So if you have that passage, please rise. If you're able, for the reading of God's Word, I'm going to read Romans 4, 13 through 25. Romans 4, verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness." But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. God, we look to you to open our eyes and soften our hearts and teach us the truth of your gospel and your word. Do that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> what does faith look like? We get a good picture of that here from the life of Abraham. So three things that I want to point out to you from this passage about what faith looks like. First of all, faith shows dependence on the grace of God. It's one of the most important things about faith. It's the role it plays in our lives. It shows our dependence on the grace of God. Now, let me just review here. We're kind of in the middle of a long argument that Paul is making. You might remember last week we learned about the doctrine of justification, that 
this wonderful promise of being made right before God, knowing we're accepted and approved by God, knowing that we are not guilty before Him. We learn that that does not come through being circumcised, or to update that, from being baptized, nor does it come from obeying the law and doing the best we can and being a religious person. Nobody's justified that way. Paul makes that argument very clearly. The way we're justified, he says, is through faith. And it's through this faith that we then receive the righteousness of God, which is, and the word that Paul uses and that the catechism uses is it's counted to us or it's imputed to us. God's righteousness from outside of us is imputed to us through faith. That word imputed, it means credited. It's kind of put into our account. You know, sometimes you get things in the mail that says, you've won a million dollars. You know, and you get all excited and then you read the fine print and you realize, oh, I gotta do all these things to get my million dollars, and you realize it's not quite that simple. But what if they said, if you got something in the mail and said, you've won a million dollars, and we've actually deposited it into your bank account. (laughs) Go check it out, and you go and you look, and there it is, a million or a million dollars richer. That's what imputation is like. It's a crediting, a putting into our moral account the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It's the only way to be justified. And that's the argument that Paul has been making. But now here in verses 13 through 25, Paul is elaborating a little more on the difference between faith and the law. And the point he's making in these early verses, like 13 through 16, is that faith and law are kind of strangely opposed to each other. They're mutually exclusive, in fact, when it comes to justification. They, they don't go together. They're in entirely different categories. So if you look what he says here in verse 13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, it did not come through the law over here, but it came through something different, the righteousness of faith. So he's pitting the law and faith against each other to show the difference between the two. Now, I think this is important because it's very easy for us to think of faith as just another thing we got to do. I mean, some of us think of faith as just another area where we have to perform. You know, I got to read my Bible, I got to evangelize, I got to go to church, and I got to have strong faith. For a lot of us, it's just another area where we have to be strong. For a lot of us, faith seems like another kind of a work of the law. I've got to have faith like God commands me to do, like He commands me all these other things to do. And so we think of faith along this long, just adding to the list of all the things we've got to do. And what Paul is saying here is, no, that's not the case. Faith in law is something very different. There's this promise that's been made to Abraham, which is recorded in Genesis 15, this promise that Abraham's descendants would be like the star of the skies, that he'd be a blessing to all the nations. And then he asked this question about how one can be an heir of that promise. How can one be a recipient of that promise? And in verse 14, he explains how that happens. And he says, if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs to receive this promise that God made to Abraham, then faith is null 
and the promise is void. Do you see how he's setting these two against each other in this verse? He's saying, if you want to be a recipient of the promises of God, particularly the promises made to Abraham, if you're relying on your obedience to the law to gain that promise and that blessing, then faith is null. Faith is nothing. Faith doesn't count for anything, and the promise becomes void. What he seems to be saying here is simply this. If you are relying on obedience to the law in order to be justified, you can't be relying on faith. And if you are relying on faith, you have trust in God through Christ to justify you, you can't be relying on the law. You can't do them both at the same time because they mutually exclude each other. They're entirely different categories. I mean, it would be like if I said, you know, I'm excited about the Colts season coming up here, their first preseason game this afternoon, actually. And what if I said to you, well, I'm really excited about the Colts season, but I just really hope they can improve their three-point shooting. You'd say, I think you're mixing categories there. (laughs) I think you're getting two sports confused. It's kind of what Paul is saying here, law and faith are two different categories, and it's important that we don't get them confused. It's like this. What God has promised to Abraham is not obey my law and I will bless you. Instead, it's I will bless you, so believe. Believe the promise. Have faith in what I promised to do. This is not about gaining God's favor through obedience to the law. So, you know, this is the whole Christian life. This is what people get so mixed up about. And I've been talking about this repeatedly here over the last few weeks as we go through this because Paul keeps hammering this. But, man, people misunderstand this so often. Just so many, I'm sure there are people in this room right now who are thinking, I'm okay with God because I do so many good things and I do the best that I can. And Paul says there is just no hope in that for being justified. It's all through faith. Now, why is this so important? Why is this faith so important? And you see this in verse 16. It's because of this. He says, this is why it depends on faith. Why? In order that the promise may rest on grace. That's why faith is so different than the law. If we're being justified through our obedience to the law, grace doesn't get magnified. God doesn't get the attention. You do for all of your good efforts. But if it's through faith, then it's through your faith that something else gets magnified, and that is the grace of God through Jesus Christ, who has obeyed the law for us, died on a cross to free us from the condemnation that we deserve. The Christian life, friends, is not about good people doing God a favor so that they can get blessings from Him. It's about weak, sinful people expressing their utter and complete dependence on a God who is gracious to sinful people. Those are two entirely different categories. Working, doing things for God, thinking God's got to do good things for me now because of all these things that I've done. That's, a, that's, that's law. Very different than, no, I don't have anything to offer except my weak faith, my open hands And I just trust that I believe in a God who does exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that I ask or think. And he's going to treat me much better than I deserve. 
That's living by faith. It can be kind of a paradigm shift sometimes for people to understand this, that God's blessings for you are not based on your performance, and they're not based even on the strength of your faith. The strength of your faith doesn't obligate God to bless you because the strength, the, the, the real kind of operating engine of this whole thing is not your faith, it's the object of your faith. Huge distinction to keep in, in mind. What God looks at is not the strength of your faith, but the one in whom you are placing your faith. And it is Jesus is the one, He is the one who is fully sufficient to provide all that you need. He is worthy of your trust. But the strength of your faith is really kind of irrelevant, honestly. And I just think that's a real freeing thing to know that my acceptance before God doesn't depend, it doesn't, it's not shaken, it's not revoked when my faith starts to totter. I mean, think of this um, as an example. <clears throat> think of a person who makes like a cardboard box and he puts a little seat in it and he puts a couple pieces of plywood over it and he takes it up on the fifth floor of a building and he thinks that when he takes that thing off the top of the building that he's gonna fly. And he believes it with all of his heart. He's fully convinced. He has great faith in this thing that he's made. How much does his great faith affect the possibility that that thing's going to fly? Not at all. Has zero influence. Doesn't matter how strong his faith is. His faith is being placed. The object of his faith is weak. That's the problem. Strong faith in a weak object is a problem. But think, on the other hand, of a person <clears throat> whose faith is very weak, and he's, for instance, scared of flying, and he's just convinced that the plane is going to crash, but he has just enough faith to step on that Boeing 747. Weak faith, but he's stepping into something that is going to fly. How much does his weak faith affect the ability of the Boeing 747 to fly? Not at all. Now, of course, there are exceptions when planes crash, I understand that, but in most cases, that plane's gonna fly. In any case, the person's faith doesn't affect the ability of the plane to fly at all. His faith is being placed in something that's worthy of its trust. That's what Paul is talking about. That's what faith is all about. That's what the Bible's talking about. Our hope for being justified is not the strength of our faith, it's as we show our dependence on God who is gracious. That's the first thing about faith that we need to understand. Second thing, faith is a reasonable trust in the character of God. It's a reasonable trust in the character of God. You know, very often faith is kind of pitted against reason. You get guys like Bertrand Russell, great atheist. Faith is a conviction which cannot be shaken by contrary evidence. Or Voltaire, who said, faith consists in believing what reason cannot. And so in both of these quotes, there's this kind of, you know, like faith and reason, they can't exist together. If you're going to be a person of faith, you have to be irrational. And if you're a reasonable, rational person, you can't really be a person of faith. That's the idea we hear a lot in our culture. And we get this idea, if you become a Christian, you know, you just got to turn off your mind, you got to bury your head in the sand, you got to convince yourselves of, you know, unicorns and, 
and fairies and mythical, you know, magic fairy tale kind of things. And you just believe it. Even though the evidence is contrary, you're just believing the irrational. That's what it is to be a Christian. A lot of people think of that, think of uh, Christianity that way. But that's not what Abraham's faith looks like in this passage. That's not the picture we're giving, given. Abraham is realistic about his situation. So let's look back here to the text. There's this promise, right, that's been given to Abraham by God that a child was going to be born to his wife. And it's an unbelievable promise. <laughs> it's really hard to accept. And in verse 19, we see that Abraham did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body. But look at that word considered. You see that? He's using his mind and he's thinking. He's looking at himself and he's saying, I'm a hundred years old. <laughs> and God has promised that my wife and I are going to have a child. And then when he considered, there's that word again. He's using his mind. He's assessing the situation. He's being realistic. He's not ignoring the facts. He's not escaping reality. He's looking at Sarah, and he's saying, my wife is barren, <laughs> and I'm 100 years old. How is this going to happen? So he, he's being realistic here. He's assessing the situation rationally. But here's the difference with Abraham. He didn't fixate on the problem. He didn't fixate on what seemed to be an insurmountable obstacle. He assessed the problem, and then from there, he turned his mind to something else. He, he was realistic, okay? He, he wasn't living in la-la land here. He said, I'm 100, Sarah's barren. But then he lifted his eyes up a little higher than his circumstance. And he considered that, you know, there's, there's another factor here. There's someone else involved here. And it's this God who is amazing. And so look at in verse 17. Paul says, As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, look at this, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. What, what Abraham does is when he sees his circumstances, they're discouraging, they seem like a setback, and then he considers two things. He thinks of creation. Wow, God has thrown the stars into the sky and created the entire universe, and God has raised his son from the dead. Well, of course, Abraham didn't know that at that time, but looking ahead, we know that today. But God is able to raise from the dead, and he considers these two things, and from that rational consideration... He draws a conclusion, and we see this in verse 21. Start with verse 20. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong <coughs> in his faith, and he gave glory to God. Look at verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. He became convinced. He became persuaded he considered it a reasonable thing to trust that God was going to be able to do what he said he was going to do, even though he was 100 and Sarah was barren. Here's a principle to consider. Friends, it's always reasonable to trust the trustworthy. And God is always trustworthy. That's a perfectly rational conclusion to draw. 
God has the power to raise from the dead and create the universe. Not only that, but he also has the will to do what he says he's going to do. He makes promises and he keeps them. He can do great things and he will do great things. And so Abraham considers these things and he believes. Faith is a reasonable trust in the character of God. If you're considering becoming a Christian, you're not a Christian yet, and you're thinking, you know, I, I just don't want to leave my brain at the door of the church. I, I want you to know you can be a Christian and fully use your brain. That you can be a thoughtful, rational, intelligent person as a Christian. Being a Christian is not a blind leap into the darkness. It's a leap out of the darkness into the light. So don't let that stop you from being a Christian. Second thing is, friends, if you want to grow in your faith, you've got to know the character of God. Do you see, Abraham knew who God was. He knew what God was like. That's how he could get the information he needed to make a reasonable decision about whether he was going to believe him or not. And the same thing for you. You've got to know who God is. You've got to know what he's like. You've got to know what he's promised. And you know that through the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. You want faith, you've got to be in the word and know who God is. So faith is a reasonable trust in the character of God. Last thing, faith rests fully on the word of God. Faith rests fully on the word of God, on, on the scriptures. I want to be careful that we don't come away from this thinking, oh, you know, Abraham was this man of great faith, and we all have to be like him. Or even the Wright brothers were men of great faith, and we have to be like them. That's not the point of, of this sermon. The Wright brothers wavered in their faith very often, and you know what? Abraham did too. Do you know what? When Abraham received the promise from God in Genesis 17 that his wife was going to have a child, do you know what he did? you know what his reaction was? He laughed. He laughed at God. <laughs> that, that was the laugh of unbelief. And he showed his unbelief later in Genesis 16 when he took Hagar to himself, had relations with her so that he could have a child with Hagar, not believing that God would be able to give him a child with Sarah. It was an evidence of his unbelief. Abraham's like you and me. You and I are like Abraham. We're all struggling to believe these things. We're all dealing with our doubts. We all struggle to laugh when God makes promises to us. And we see many things in our lives that challenge our faith. Our past experience of many setbacks, our feelings are contrary sometimes to what the Word says. We hear popular opinion that's so different than Christian teaching. Scientific studies come out sometimes and they seem contrary to what we've been taught in the Bible. We've got our own challenges. Abraham his, had his challenge. He was 100 years old and Sarah was 90 years old. So, so where was Abraham going to go to find faith? Where was he going to go to have encouragement? And there's only one place that he could go. There's only one thing that he could rely on. And it's what God had said to him. That was it. Verse 18. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. As he had been told. God told him something. Here it is in Genesis 
15, God brought Abraham outside and said, look toward the heavens and, and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. God made that promise, spoke it to Abraham. Abraham heard it, and Abraham believed it. He had nothing else to cling to but the Word of God. And friends, that's my encouragement to you today. You have the Word of God, and you know you have a whole lot more of the Word of God today than Abraham had. You have a whole lot more promises to cling to than Abraham had, and they're written right here in your Bibles. And for Abraham, his only hope was to cling, what God, cling to what God had said. And my question to you today is what promises are there in God's Word that He is calling you to believe in today? In the midst of whatever circumstance you're in, however discouraged you might be, however overwhelmed you might be, however hopeless that you might be feeling, I don't know what it is. I'm sure everybody has something different that they could cling to. What does God's Word say about that, and how, how, how might he be calling you to cling to that and to believe it and to hold on to it? Maybe for you, you're just fearing that, that God is angry with you. Look at this promise from Psalm 103. He will not always child, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's a promise. You know, Leslie's here talking to us about their ministry to women. Maybe you've had an abortion, and you just cannot get past the idea that God might forgive you for that. This applies to you. He, he will not keep His anger forever, and He does not deal with us according to our sins. Do you need to believe that today? How about um, the shame that you might be carrying for any number of sins and things in your past. Well, here's a promise from Romans 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. Do you need to believe that today? To cling to that? Find hope in that? Maybe you're just feeling like I can never be good enough. I can't do enough good things to make God love me and to feel like He accepts me. Romans 4, we covered this last week, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. The righteousness that you need is promised to you through faith. Do you believe that? Do you need to believe that? Maybe you're feeling despair in the face of death, death of a loved one, maybe an illness that you yourself are struggling with. Jesus says this, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. What a promise. What a promise. All of us are going to be looking at death one day. This is a promise we all need to cling to and believe. Well, we need to stop. Um, let me just conclude by saying this, and I already just kind of said it, you know, it, Abraham believed God. It was credited to him as righteousness. But friends, we have so much more reason to believe in the promises of God because now we look and we see God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Isaac was born. The, the child that he said was going to be born to a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman, it happened. <laughs> and you know what? After that happened, Abraham laughed again. 
But this time it was the laughter of joy. It was the laughter of thankfulness. Maybe he was laughing at himself. Can't believe I didn't believe what God said to me was going to happen. The promises are, are so much greater today. Something much greater is, has happened than an airplane flying in the air. Something greater has happened even than Isaac being born to a 100-year-old man and a 9-year-old woman. The Lord Jesus Christ has come and has been delivered over for our trespasses and raised from the dead for our justification. Raised from the dead so that all who place faith in him can know that their sins are forgiven and they are justified before God. What a great promise. Let's believe it and look to the table now as we look to be fed by our Savior. Let's pray together. God in heaven, we thank you so much for um, the richness and the realism of your word. We thank you, Lord, for um, Abraham. Father, we confess that we are weak people. We're weak in our faith. We, we shake. We don't believe. We laugh at you sometimes. But God, have mercy on our weak faith. And thank you that Jesus is fully sufficient for all of our hope and trust. That's in his name we pray. Amen.